Last week in episode 83, we met and heard the story of Marcus Bullock, who's currently a CEO and a formerly incarcerated individual, having spent eight years in a federal maximum security prison. Now, the first part of the conversation we had painted the picture of his time entering and time spent in prison, something we bet most of you had not heard firsthand about before. Yeah, I sure hadn't. So at the end of that episode, we left off with Marcus talking about how he was one of the blessed ones. He not only made it out of prison, but he did so successfully. Now, remember, 95% of incarcerated individuals do make it out of prison. So our question was, how is the American system setting people up for success or for failure, as the case may be? These are returning citizens we're talking about. Like, really, they are still citizens, even though some basic rights are stripped away from them arbitrarily as a result of that time in prison. So what you're going to hear is reality. We have second-class citizens in this country, and formerly incarcerated individuals fall squarely in that category. So listen in now to the conclusion of our two-part interview with Marcus Bullock to hear more truths about the U.S. prison system and so much more. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that eases you into uncomfortable conversations about race, racism, and how to be more anti-racist. We're your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. And one more question about the culture inside, like then, because what you just said was, I feel like in stark contrast to, again, what movies and also what you alluded to, like the violence and the needing to protect yourself. And, you know, how does that come into play inside the prison system? Yeah. I mean, it's the same, again, another microcosm, right? Like a small pocket of the population are experiencing levels of anger or distrust or humiliation or jealousy, envy, or any of the reasons, or some of them, you know, because of the lack of just lack. And so, because there is a part of the population, again, it's a microcosm. So there is a part of the population, there's classes in prison, right? There's a upper class in prison, a mid, a middle class person, the upper class person who doesn't have a, a job at the prison, they don't go to work anywhere, but you know, they came to prison, they got locked up with a lot of money or their family members got a lot of money. And so they send them a bunch of money and they don't have to do nothing but sit there and watch TV and buy stuff or from commissary and go play sports and basketball. And they just do their time. They just coast through. Then there's a middle class, right? Like same level of privilege. There's a middle class, a prison that actually has jobs. They work and they get paid $30 a month and they're able to buy the bare necessities like soap and soap powder and, you know, detergent and underclothes and all that kind of stuff. And they're making it through, right? And they're thinking and praying, hopefully, that one day they'll make parole and they'll be able to either graduate to an upper class somehow through some magical job in a prison because they'll get transferred to a prison that has a higher paying job or they try to keep the job they have to not be a part of the lower class. The lower class are the people that are the people who either don't work, don't have a job, don't want to get a job, can't find a job. Got keep getting fired from job. They have most of them have mental health issues, and the prison administration they aren't excited about trying to figure out how to solve mental health problems. CEOs don't get paid enough for that. Correctional officers don't get paid enough for that. So they're like, "Yo, look, you don't have mental problems. You just a nut. I'm gonna put you in a hole." And so they get relegated to the bottom, just like people in prison do out here in the community, and they get thrown in the jail of the jail. The hole is jail inside of jail, solitary confinement. Right? You're in a jail inside of jail. And so it's the same way. So we mimic the world that you see. What was the world out here is mimicked inside of prison. Yeah, exactly. Which then leads me to healthcare then, right? Like, because surely sometime during the eight years you were inside, you get a cold, you get sick. You, like, how does that happen in prison? Same way. 
if you're part of the privileged few and you have cash on your books and you can afford to go to medical because you can afford to pay the copay or you can afford the medications that they're going to need to order for you in order to be able to make it through your whatever condition it is, then you're good. If you have been classified as an indigent person inside of the sales, then maybe you can qualify for some type of medical health care coverage that will allow you to have some of those medications. If you're a part of the middle class, then yeah, you're going to spend your whole check paying for Medicaid like you would if you were out here in, this, in the streets. The interesting thing about that is, is that it transfers, like the lower caste system transfers once you're released from prison. And so now if you, like, you had diabetes and you were indigent and you were able to get medication for your diabetic conditions, now you come home from prison, you're still indigent because you ain't had those same, if you didn't have those same supports while you were there, you came home, likelihood of you having supporting staff, a supporting team is low. And so now you come home and now you're a diabetic and you aren't able to afford those medications. And then you end up like my boy Fats, who came after serving, what, I think, 14 years and came home after 14 years and six months after he passed away um, after going into a diabetic coma. I can't even imagine. And, you know, this, like hearing about sort of the class system in prison and the, how that translates and how that is a microcosm of our society now. You know, I want to ask, so you're in this system, you know, you're seeing this happening, you're, you went through puberty you know, in prison, you've got these big dreams now, because now you've got the magazines and, you know, you want to go to Geneva and you've got these like watches and you have all these dreams. And then, you know, that day comes, you get out, right? Like, and now how does that translate into your life outside of prison? Like, what was that like? You're 23, you're back with your mom, you know, where do you go? Like, can you talk to me about that? Yeah, I mean, when I first came home, I didn't know what I was doing. Like, I had all of the aspirations of doing these amazing things without any resources, right? I did have a massive amount of love, though, right, and support from my mom, who allowed me to be able to come home with the flexibility of saying, don't have, just don't go back. You don't got to worry about paying any bills. You know, a lot of people don't, you know, there are tons of people that don't have that, right? I, I had safe and adequate housing, right? My mom had a home that I was able to come home to. I had my own bedroom. It was mine. So I could, you know, I had a key to the house, right? Like I was good to go, right? It was in a safe neighborhood, right? It didn't look like the neighborhoods that we used to live in when I was younger. And so like, that was a big plus. You know, Monday turned into Tuesday, Tuesday turned into Wednesday. And that sense of gratefulness that I had allowed me to just like move through the world. Same, the same disillusion markets that I was at the beginning of my prison sentence. Like I came home and was like a different level of like, of glee. It was just, I couldn't imagine life being any better than it could was. It was like, holy crap, like the level of, it was like consistent euphoria. There was like, it was no way to describe it outside of like massive dopamine every day, simply by waking up and putting my feet out of the bed, right? It was like, I just walk around, like to this day, I just can't stop smiling, right? Like when I think about it, like I can't believe this is my life. And that was the day when I, that was it back in February 2004. And it literally right now, February, September 2020, and I'm still having the same sentiments today where I'm like, yo, like, this is amazing. You know what I mean? And over time, you know, it was, I had to learn how to do the things like, you know, communicate with other people, you know, like how to have a conversation about things that weren't just like prison related, right? Or how to, to overcome some of the tech challenges I had when I first came home because I went to prison and there was no internet. And then I came home, it was like Google. I'm like, yo, this is crazy. You know what I mean? Like the world, complete world changed. And so there was a lift there. But then finally I landed on a job. I got a job. I mean, I applied for a bunch of them. I got told no a lot. Like my first bunch of jobs, set of jobs, I got told no. And um, interestingly enough, like, well, 
most people get defeated. Like, again, I'm coming back home to a mom that was like, oh, don't worry about it. And I wasn't smart enough to know that it was likely that the next person was going to tell me no again. I was so naive. I'm like, oh, yeah, well, that was only this one group. Like, I'm way smarter. I'm like, I feel like I can get a job here. Like, I just feel like this one company could definitely hire me, right? And I would feel that way every day until one paint company, um, they did give me a gig. I was the guy mixing paint on the, you know, off the, off the shelf. And um, I was able to take that job at the paint store that was mixing paint for customers who wanted to come and get their kitchens painted with an opportunity that was presented to me from customers who just wanted to find out how much it costs for me to come paint kitchens. And I'm like, well, when I'm paint kitchens, I paint, I work in a paint store. I'm like the dude at Home Depot with the orange apron that's going to give you this aquamarine blue. Like, that's me. I ain't painting kitchens though. <laughs> but it was the customers in the paint store that would come in and they would complain about it not being any work because the, we were now in the mid 2000s. People were fearful of this new pending recession. Folks were getting laid off in the construction industries. I saw that as an opportunity to create a painting business that allowed me to be the conduit to connect the Miss Johnsons of the world that wanted their kitchens painted and the painters who were complaining about it not being any work. We were able to grow that small painting business to a construction firm over the years. And that was a, a fun part of the journey. You glossed over this a little bit. You were like, yeah, I applied to some jobs. Am I correct? When you, not you applied to some jobs and got rejected. You applied to 41 jobs and got rejected and got job 42, correct? 41 total. The 42nd said yes. I mean, that's a lot of perseverance and like capacity to tolerate rejection, which I don't think on the best day, many humans have that kind of resilience. And so it speaks to your character and also the foundation that your mom set up, you know, but like, that's a lot. Like, were you asked on all of those jobs about that really painful question of like, have you been like convicted of a felony? Have you been convicted of a felony? That was always the disqualifier. And the reality of it is, is that Sarah, like in hindsight, like having this conversation and saying it to you all and having you know, having that those journal entries, looking back on all of those different companies and stores, retail stores and mortgage brokers and grocery stores and the delivery spots and all those places that told me no. You know, it wasn't until much later when people were like, yo, you got told no 41 times. Yo, that's a lot. And I was like, really? Hmm. You know, the 42nd told me yes, though, right? I'm winning. Right. And I think that what ended up happening is like, again, going back to the perspective thing, growing up in an environment when, you know, like I got told no literally 365 times, eight years straight. You know what I mean? Like for years, you know what I mean? And so like having a six month run of being told no and then getting the, on the seven or eighth month getting told yes, it was like, oh, I am with it. It was only 41 people that told me no. It wasn't until later when I, after I learned of others' experience, I was like, yo, uh, 41 people told me no, right? Because before that, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm expecting at least the first 200. So if the I made it before 100 and I'm getting paid a dollar more than minimum wage, right? Like, I wouldn't get paid minimum wage. It was a dollar more than minimum wage. I am super winning. And they let me get overtime. Like, say all the way less. I'm there. There's two other directions then, because I think one of the things we want to talk about is, like, companies who employ returning citizens. I mean, I think, like, is there a database out there of companies that are doing that? We just interviewed people who run this glasses company, Gen UC, who make recycled or these glasses out of recycled water bottles in Flint, Michigan and employ returning citizens in Flint. Like they're an incredibly yeah. thoughtful company, right? And I know of Second Chances Farms that are employing people in your neck of the woods, actually, for hydroponic farms and sustainable food development. But like, 
I feel like that's a conversation that's really important is like, you know, what would you say to people who are hesitant about hiring returning citizens? Because yeah, they, yeah, they, they still do. Yeah, they stupid. That's all. They just stupid. No, I'm joking. That was horrible. None of you guys, if you, you, know, that's, you guys aren't stupid. You're just ignorant because you just don't know. You haven't met a Marcus. We started the conversation. I was like, you haven't met a Marcus. Because once you meet a Marcus, then you're like, yo, like I can boost my sales in a very demonstrative way by this class of this small group of people. We learned that way more loyal. They want a job so desperately. They ain't never going to leave. Like we don't have to worry about turnover. So employment and ain't trying to go nowhere. And they're very accustomed to being somewhere for a lot of years, right? <laughs> like, they're the ones who are, want to learn. They want to evolve. They want to grow. They want to prove to the community that they're more than that sticker that they have on their back that has an inmate number attached to it. They want, there's so much desire for success there that they're obviously going just to outperform most. You aren't going to outwork me. I mean, your definition of hard work just doesn't mirror my definition of hard work. It's the things that I had to do in order to be able to get here to be this CEO of this kind of company in this era that has my skin color with my background. The, get here, the work that I had to do to get here, I feel very confident with saying most people just won't outwork me. And it's not because you just, it's because, and it's not because I wake up every morning saying you won't outwork me. It's because the natural in-depth fabric of Marcus that was created as a result of this horrible uh, time of my life has built something that's a machine that can't be rumbled with. And so what I tell the others are, there are tons of machines that are waiting for you. The reality of it is that you have to be the one that is accepting enough to understand that there's probably going to be some communication shifts. They're going to use some terms that you aren't going to know. They're going to dress a different way. They are. Their hair is going to look a little different, and that's okay. Their children are going to speak different, and they probably are going to text and use FaceTime versus email. It's the reality of a changing and evolving world. But these are the levels of innovations that will allow your businesses to be able to thrive. And if you're looking to move past all of the stale things that you've done in the past that continue to not work, but you continue to replicate them over and over again, here's a different solution. Hire somebody to look like me. I promise you. It's going to work out. That's awesome. I don't have a company, but I would hire you or are you <laughs> replica? You know, what about the social aspect? Because I want to talk about the barriers of that process of returning. It doesn't sound like the prison complex itself trains people to return successfully. That's why your company is here and we will definitely continue to talk about your company. You know, what about returning as a citizen and the socializing? Because you talked about your mom being an incredible support for you, but so many people don't have lost touch with their families over the years while they were inside or, you know, so, and people who like, to my knowledge, I've never had someone over for dinner who has spent time in prison. Like, right. It could just be because I've never met someone until now or it wasn't discussed. Like there's gotta be probably aside from the race barrier, a status barrier, right. Once people are aware that you were formerly incarcerated, like you said, even in your, like for your HOA, like what, should people be doing differently or thinking differently about the socializing side of things? I mean, I feel like, you know, the first part of it is changing the dinner table conversation. That's the first part, right? And having, you know, shifting the conversation and have, bringing, introducing this one into it, right? It allows you to be able to hear about the stories of my mom and my sister and my wife and my two children and my best friends and my best friends who are in prison. And I think that what it does is when you, when you change the dinner table conversations, it allows you to change your own perspective in your own way, whether it be 
through your friendship circles and the folks that live or the folks that live in your neighborhood, creating a level of empathy with them, or whether it be in your HR departments when you're thinking about hiring someone or in your marketing departments when you're thinking about communicating with a group of people who are probably maybe even your target customers but don't know how to be able to do it. And you're thinking, who should I hire to bring them in to run this? Or as you think about, you know, what schools you go, you know, your children go to and their friends and how they engage with them and then you, how you engage with the parents there and having a different kind of conversation there as a result of you just being a little bit more educated around what's happening inside of the community that doesn't look like yours. And I think that, you know, once we change the dinner table conversations, you're going to get all of that. The second part of that wave, I think, you know, is figuring out ways to be able to be supportive of those who have either companies or organizations that are being led by folks that are returning citizens. What it does is it signals to not only the company and those team members, but to the entire community that this is a worthwhile cause. Most times people that are, and especially during this new evolving conversation around justice reform, these, the companies that are being intentional about bringing this community of people into their organizations or into their leadership, they are probably a social impact organization or they're in the tech sectors. That's what we're seeing, the trends um, harming toward. And because of that, then especially most specifically inside of the social impact sectors, when we think about whether it's philanthropic capital, venture capital, or the companies that we do business with, we like to think of these companies as worthwhile donations and not places that we should be investing our time, resources, and real, make real capital investments. And I think that when we begin to shift the ideal of it being a place where I'm just doing good, but Shifting it to now saying that this is a company that is scalable, that can create real great good inside of the world. Now we're shifting again, not only just the dinner table conversations, but how we present ourselves leveraging the economic strength, which typically is always the thing, the determining factor as to who gets the opportunity to accelerate inside of any community. And so when we are able to figure out real ways to be able to back some of these businesses and back them, meaning become customers of them, hire them, when you send out your RFPs, being intentional about seeking out the businesses that are being led by teams that look like mine or have leader people in their leadership that look like mine, or so even serving customers that are serving customers that look like ours, then I think that, you know, you're doing something that's bigger than just, you know, doing business with someone or investing in them. You're investing in an entire community. One of the things that I think that was interesting about what we saw inside of the communities on in any other place, and I'll, I'll take any other place we saw a huge, massive growth. Like I think about what happened in the on, in Silicon Valley. We think about what happened in the West Coast and the tech sectors, right? Like we saw massive explosion of growth in with trillions of dollars in mass cap companies coming out over the last decade or two. And we have been very, very clear about ways to be able to invest and be able to ensure that we see the kind of growth there. And it's all as a result of, you know what people are doing? Writing the check. It was a bunch of folks that said, we're going to write a check. We believe in this group of people that are going to be building solutions that are going to take us into the future forward. And now when we think about other conversations that have to be had inside of wanting to create another big wave of growth inside of this other community, we try to figure out other ways to be able to solve the problem by either mentoring our way out of the problem or protesting or talking our way of the problem instead of just saying, how about we actually make investments and write the check? The same thing that happened for this wave of people, it wasn't a study. We ain't had panel discussions. We ain't bringing together congressmen and all that. No, you know what we did? We got our wealthy elite to come together and say, we were going to write a check and we're going to create a wave. The same thing can be happen can happen here. When you see more folks investing in people who look like me, you'll see a massive shift in the way that our country views equity. 
I loved everything about that. I want to record that and play it for everyone I know, which is literally what we're doing through the podcast. <laughs> so done. You know, I know that through Flickshop and, you know, I want to talk about Flickshop and in particular Flickshop Angels and the Flickshop School of Business, because I think you have created something that is so expansive and considers so many parts of what you've learned and experienced that I want to share that with our audience too. But, you know, I'm sure that, you know, from that paint company, you know, and mixing the paint and moving into, you know, creating that company to now flick shop, like the rooms and the circles and the conversations that you have are now with very different groups of people too. And so, you know, I want to talk about that and how that evolution, you know, has, you know, affected like what you say or how you say, you know, that message and your message. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, thank you for bringing, you know, to, for bringing up Flickshop Angels and FSB. And I'll talk about that in a second. It has been an interesting journey, right? Like you can imagine, like the amount of social capital that I have now is different than what, you know, we pre- experienced previously, right? Some of my best friends, they look at me now, like I'm the one that made it. They're like, oh, here go Marcus, right? You're like, I'm the one that made it, right? And that's been fun. And I think it's been interesting because what it also does, it gives me an opportunity, to, you know, to be the one that helps to shape those same kind of dinner table conversations that I just talked about. There's a heavy responsibility that comes along with that. It's massive. But I think that we're doing a good job of managing it thus far. It's important to me to not only figure out ways to be able to build the solutions that give back and contribute in to the communities where I come from and service the families the way that we do. And, not, and again, and even with our technology, we're thoughtful about, you know, not just people that are incarcerated, right? Like families in general. I mean, there are people who leverage our technology today to send postcards to their grandparents in senior living facilities, or they use Flickshop to send postcards to their loved ones at basic training when they're getting deployed after, you know, signing up to be in the military. There are folks who've used our technology to send postcards to their children when they go to these summer camps and they don't have access to their social networks or cell phones, but they can only write letters and receive mail. So we're heavily rooted in family. Now, we specifically target folks who are incarcerated with Flickshop and our branding because we understand that this is typically the population of folks who are going to get boxed out. And so we wanted to be able to make sure that they had a way to receive the same amount of love that some of those others would, can receive even if they want to just go on Facebook and see it and there's no one that this population cannot. So when we did that, it was interesting because we learned that they're the people that would leverage our technology in those ways that created identifiers for us. And we were like, yo, the same way. I mean, these were folks that were like, you know, why would I communicate with someone in prison? And I'm like, yo, but you just sent a postcard to your grandmother's senior living facility. So you understand the value of family connectivity and what it means for you and your grandmother even. Because you didn't even send this postcard for you. You sent this because of you knew the reaction that was going to cause when your grandmother got her name called by the person at the front desk at Sunrise Senior Assistant Living Center, right? The same reaction that you wanted for her is the same reaction that I wanted for my friends. And I think that that level of alignment has created some empathy that I couldn't have even dreamt about when we launched Flickshop, which has been very, very interesting. What ended up happening with Flickshop Angels was this, the result of, interestingly enough, John Legend, the music artist, him leveraging I to send postcards to people and wanting to figure out how to help other families create that same wave in the circles and the communities that even couldn't afford the 99 cents. Because while our flick shop postcards are only a buck, for some communities, that's even 
a massive amount of money to talk about taking from another part of your monthly expenses. And so he purchased a bunch of flick shop credits and became our first flick shop angel that we gave to children with incarcerated parents. And that was very, very interesting because we learned very quickly that these kids wanted to send selfies to their moms and dads by the droves. And the biggest barrier was the fact they had to ask the auntie and uncle for their credit cards. And so we were wondering, how can we do this at scale? And we launched FlickShopAngels.com to be able to do that so that our community members can band together and support children with incarcerated parents all around the country. And so we partner with organizations that support these children, giving them these small FlickShop gift cards that are preloaded with FlickShop credits, allowing them to send those selfies to mom and dad. And it's been incredible to see how the community is pouring out love with the majority of them saying, Marcus, I've never had anyone incarcerated in my family, but I know how important this is. And so I want to be able to contribute. And that was, that's been an amazing, amazing part of this journey. I'm already like, all right, cool. So we'll definitely tell everybody about Flick Shop Angels and about the platform. (laughs) You know, just in terms of now reflecting on, you mentioned several times this idea of like the $18 freaking phone calls and the crazy predatory practices of the prison phone systems and communication. Obviously it sounds to me like that should change. You know, are there other things when you reflect back on this time, aside from this building, this the critical part of building empathy and really having people focus on the humanity of everybody involved in this system at their dinner table with their, we should all be talking about the fact that we're all people, are there any other systems or things that you would want to see changed about the way the system is run? You know, I mean, the system is designed to to run the way it's been running, right? This is the way it was designed. And so there's a ton of things, and let's, just to be clear, so I am a mass incarceration abolitionist. I believe that we can do very, very clear, we can take the very, very clear steps to be able to reduce our, our prison population by, I mean, historical numbers very, very quickly with a series of steps. A few of them, you know, are going to be, you know, where we're going to be building a bunch of our technologies, which is around reentry planning and recidivism prevention tactics. Thinking through how to involve the community and how to involve the credible messengers, the folks who are the Marcuses and the Dwaynes. Dwayne is my co-defendant. I mean, he's an attorney and he was my co-defendant at the time. He was 16, I was 15. And today he's getting his doctorate at Yale Law. And it's incredible to see him come out of his federal clerkship this past summer after writing his most latest award-winning book. There are people in prison that need to know that story. If you're sitting in prison right now and you want to write a book, right? Like Dwayne is the person that you need to see, the person you need to be in front of, that he needs to be in front of you so that you can know that it's possible. Because again, can't be what you can't see. Thinking through how to be able to build the technologies that allow for that kind of recidivism prevention and reentry strategies to happen. But on the policy side, there's some policy things that need to happen as well. And the policy, again, is policy starts by changing the dinner table conversations. And part of what the work that we're doing is changing the narrative for what it looks like to have been in prison and to come home from prison and what potential success can look like when we're supported in ways. My mom supported me. And there are a ton of people in the community that want to be able to be supportive. They just don't know how. And there's several organizations that are attaching themselves to the new policy advancements that will allow for a new wave of reform laws that, to sweep through that will reduce the prison populations in, by big numbers. And a lot of those, you can find out more of them on the FlickShop.com website for resources. And I think that the last thing, which I think is the, one of the biggest things that you know, we have to do across the country, 
is figure out ways to be able to build anti-racist policies inside of all of our either organizations or businesses and even inside of our homes that will allow us to be able to really, really, really impact what's happening and sweeping across the country when we think about what's going on inside of the, the, the bracelets that are ending up on black and brown people. Right. And that's an interesting thing of it is, is that we're starting to see as a result of the media. And I won't even spend a ton of time here, but we're starting to see that you're lucky if you end up actually getting bracelets put on you, end up making it to the back of the patrol car and going to prison. You're one of the lucky ones because there's so many other people as a result of some of these same racist policies and racist conversations that are happening inside of these companies and these corporations and these police departments and these courtrooms are resulting in people dying at the hand of it. And so as we think about how to systemically eradicate this era of mass incarceration, we focus on how to prevent people from going back to prison once released, because it's not just enough to be able to focus on census and reform laws. And we're starting to learn as a result of, you know, the first conversations when Obama was in office and he started to change those crack versus cocaine laws. We started to learn that this was a major problem. But that's the first one. And then the second one, again, is those policy conversations. And the third one being, again, building these anti-racist policies. Well, and just really quickly, for people who are still new, I don't know how many listeners are new to this conversation, but like when you talk about some of those policies, in particular, people imagine incarceration as like what you mentioned, like the process of getting arrested, hopefully safely, and going through court, and then being put in jail, prison, right? Like wherever you end up. Can you just briefly talk about the policies of re-entry that are really major barriers? I mean, you mentioned like that... Have you been convicted of a felony box? Like what the right to vote? Can you just talk about how you've seen that affect you and others who are returning? I mean, we do know about, you know, some of the things that, you know, as a result of, you know, I think it's like what, 40,000 collateral consequences that have been identified as a result of having a felony, whether it be from, you know, lack of, you know, inability for to gain that gainful employment to housing. Again, I talk about, you know, where not only like, where you can rent, but even where you can purchase because of HOA restrictions or lending requirements for certain types of loans that still have language that disqualify people with a felony conviction. I mean, there are places when I was running my construction company that I couldn't take projects as a result of my felony conviction. One of our largest projects, the project that was the most transformative for our company, which was with Baltimore Washington International Airport. Can you imagine their faces when I did my thumbprint signature, my thumbprint scan at TSA and on the computer, they were like, you know, apply for your badge to be able to explore. Now I'm the CEO of the company, of this painting company, won the contract already. We have a five-year contract with the airport, right? And I'm just so, I'm not even thinking, I've been home for a couple of years. I've completely forgot, yo, dude, you, gotta, you know you got a felony, right? But I'm going in and I'm going to go apply for my badge because you got to have a badge to work inside of the airport. And all of my employees have a badge, right? And as I think of, you know, I'm going to be employing a bunch of other people, this new project is going to allow me to employ a lot of people. And hopefully I'll be able to employ one to have a felony conviction. I go in TSA, I scan my thumbprint, and the red light start flashing. They was like, dude, I'm like, you know what? I got to go to the bathroom and be right back, right? Walked out of that office and I had to go find someone. I had literally had to hire someone to work at my company to be, to be a badged employee, because when you're a badged employee under TSA guidelines, you can escort up to two people through the airport as long as they have an ID, a valid driver's license. I had to literally hire someone to pay them just to escort the CEO around of the project because I couldn't work on my own job site that I was managing for the next five years, right? 
like so it doesn't matter whether it's the guy who wants to be able to get a very small job or the person the, the woman who wants to be able to start a massive construction business the collateral consequences are immense they are are started in policies that originated around again that that box uh, that was presented on job applications that said hey are have you been convicted of a felony it then expanded over to colleges and universities and not only was it jobs but colleges and universities started to put on their applications before on their admissions application before you even apply here have you been convicted of a felony because we don't want you walking on our campus if you have been, right? Like these are things that are preventing folks. When you're getting released from prison, most of us are on probation or parole with a mandate that you must find a job and adequate housing or go to school. You got to do one of three or you're going to get violated and go back to prison. But they're on the flip side, as soon as you leave the PO's office, there are disqualifiers in each one of those three spaces to prevent you from doing that. The mandate to be successful, but yet creating barriers to be able to amass that success is something that most folks can't jump over. And that's just after prison. We aren't even talking about the laws, the policies that were driven before you even get to the actual prison cell. I'm talking about at the jail level, the juvenile policies that allow what policy was written. Who was the smartest? Who was the person that said, you know what? I'm not going to talk about when, you know, political candidates were getting on TV saying, let's lock these 15, 16 year olds up because they're super predators. We not even talk about that rhetoric, right, that swept through the nation that came out in the 94, 95, 96 elections that made my judge say, oh, you're a super predator. You're going to get a life sentence in prison. We're not going to go there. But the laws that said that it's just okay to send someone that's 15 years old to prison in general for one day, let alone for eight years. There's something that needed to change on both sides of it. And one of the things that I like to, I'm proud of is working in between that and it's one of the reasons why I sit on the board at the Justice Policy Institute, where we're very intentional about figuring out how to develop new policy laws and legislation that can overcome some of these issues that are putting black and brown people in cells for, for decades at a time, and then even boxing them out for decades at a time after they release from prison as well. I mean, I would just love to see some sort of training for people who are in a hiring position at companies to ask better questions. Like, how do you truly judge the character of a person? And how do you confront that. I mean, I think that how do you weed out the very few who really aren't the Marcuses, Mm -hmm. you know, and how do you ask the right questions to assess someone's real character? I mean, I feel like that is just something that people aren't trained in and they're afraid of. So they get, they take the easy way out and just check mark, you're gone. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, I feel like we struggle with that, you know, whether or not, like if I get a candidate of five people that just graduated from UPenn, like I still have that same conundrum. You know what I mean? I think that the difference is, is that the checkbox, whatever the checkbox is, like whether or not it says convicted of a felony or not, or you just did a background search, right? Whatever that thing that trigger was that alerted you to this person's background is now the disqualifier. It wasn't the fact that you gotten to the point where they became the potential candidate that allowed you to see that they weren't the right one for this role. It was like, yo, we looked and seen that this John had it, this person had an inmate number before. And are they going to, and now it's filling the blank, are they going to steal from us? Are they going to lie to us about this? Are they going to, right? It's all of those things, those question marks that are looming as a result of how you talked about media portraying people that have been in these sales that prevents from real progress. I think that's just highlights the need to have these conversations like we've been talking about, the dinner conversations, the getting away from, you know, the culture fit or the sort of the oblique references to someone who doesn't, seem to fit into my box of what an employee or what a friend or what a person or someone that I want to have in my house or my company 
fits into neatly, right? Because we do label people and, you know, just to continue to get stories out there and talk really about the humanity behind what goes into everything is so key. So, you know, I really appreciate you spending and this time with us and breaking it down for us in very real ways and answering all of our questions. Because when, when you said you were open to any question, we were like, the dang, like, let's go for it. <laughs> On that note, like for two questions, like one, you know, if our listeners want to find out more about FlickShop, you know, where do they go to find out more about that business and you in general? And two, like, was there anything that we didn't ask that you want to share with our listeners? You know, um, thank you so much. I mean, so again, thank you for having me, given the opportunity to be able to have this kind of conversation. I mean, again, my expectation is to shift the dinner table conversations. Then we have to figure out a way to be able to be open and willing to be able to have, you know, answer some of the hard questions, right? It may be uncomfortable. In some rooms, it may be kind of sort of even squirmish, right? But I think that the more that we learn, and I think that, you know, the most recent protests that we've seen started to sweep across the country in the, in the most recent months have been a great signal to that, right? Like the more that we are learning, the better off the country continue to grow to become. And uh, while I'm extremely optimistic about us, you know, reshaping, or reimagining this new world that has anti-racist policies built inside of our own, not only just organizations and businesses, but in a, again, in the fabric of our households. I think that, you know, we'll begin to see this era of mass incarceration continue to push down. If you want to find out more information about me or FlickShop, it's all at FlickShop.com, F-L-I-K-S-H-O-P.com. No C. Most people put the C in there phonetically. I get it. You know, you're supposed to put the C, but no, it's no C. F-L-I-K-S-H-O-P. And, uh, you know, things that I think that we haven't talked about, you know, one of the things that if I think that if there's anything else that I think that the country, that the listeners, I want them to walk away with is that um, my name is Marcus Bullock and I have a children. I mean, I have children. I have a son. His name is Marcus Jr. And my daughter, her name is Aya. Marcus is in the fourth grade and Aya is in pre-K four. I didn't even know that was a thing. But, you know, it just, my mom's name is Sylvia. Right. Like this is a real family that had a real son that lived in a cell in the vast majority of the country. They're fearful of me. They're fearful of that. When they see me walk in, I'm a tall, dark skinned man. And they and if they know my background. They're even more fearful. Right. And I want to be able to be the one that says, don't be scared. Like I'm a person. And I think that the more conversations we have and raise the level of, of a humanity, around that and real, really tell the stories of the people that are sitting in these cells or they're living in some of the neighborhoods that you wouldn't dream driving through. I think that you'll realize like there are waves of innovation that are waiting. There are waves of solution. There's even buckets full of love that is on the other side of that fear. And this is just one more notch to be able to break that notch of fear down for you. And I hope that I'll be able to give each one of you guys a hug over time, because I believe that love can overcome. I love that. Thank you so much. If you ever come through Denver and COVID's not a thing, come over for dinner. Well, I'm in the Bay Area. <laughs> Gotta come by too, so. I'm coming, I'm holding you guys to it. I love both of those places. Denver is so beautiful. I haven't been to Denver in a bit. Denver is beautiful. You know, Masashi was instant. Let me tell you something about the Bay Area. The Bay Area was the first time, well, first place I was like, yo, you know, we're building a tech company. And I'm excited about the amount of tech talent that's there and even, you know, venture capital is there. And I'm like, you know, how, as we think about growth, you know, what is it going to be like? What's potentially coming on that side of the country? 
And until I got there and I started looking at apartments, I'm like, oh, well, there goes that idea. <laughs> but such a beautiful place. And I'm so grateful again for you guys and, and giving space to have this kind of conversation. Thank you so much. If you love what you're hearing, subscribe to the Dear White Women podcast so you don't miss any of our anti-racist, identity-affirming episodes released every Wednesday. Shows that seek to show that we as humans rise by lifting others. Support our Patreon, which allows us to keep making work that highlights different narratives that help us broaden our horizons, including a new monthly virtual community centered around book studies. Want to follow us on social media? We're at Instagram and Facebook at Dear White Women Podcast. And we're on Twitter at DWW Podcast. And of course, we'll be sending out vital info and opinions via email, which you can sign up for on our website, www.dearwhitewomen.com. Thanks for being part of the conversation. 